Hebrews chapter 12. We start in verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we might share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Father, this morning we acknowledge that we are not yet fully who we are meant to be, that we are being sanctified, that we are being transformed, that we are being trained and disciplined in righteousness, that we might be more like Jesus Christ, our Savior. Father, I pray this morning that as we wrestle with the work that you are doing in each of our hearts and minds, that we would yield to the work of the Holy Spirit and that we would strive with every ounce of who we are to fight for holiness. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can imagine yourselves in the footsteps of a young woman in the first century. She has left the faith of her mother and father and has embraced at the behest of the disciples of Jesus the faith that calls us to follow him. Many of her friends in her social circle have done the same but as the intensity of persecution in the Roman Empire grows, one by one, they begin to fall away. She is kicked out of her family home and moves from house to house with the remaining few who follow Jesus Christ until there is nowhere left to go. You can imagine again an old couple in 2021, who are living in China, who have followed Jesus Christ for many, many years, they have led a house church that have met in a number of homes in a provincial part of the largest nation, most populous nation on the earth. They have discipled many through the years, and now they have meeting in the home of a neighbor, a small cluster of those who are new to the faith of Jesus Christ. 
But one day, in the middle of their gathered meeting, the nearly two dozen who are there in their living room are assaulted by the police who have discovered what it is they're doing. And the old wife watches her even older husband dragged away and thrown into prison, not knowing if he will ever be allowed to see the light of freedom again. The congregation is young. They are new to the faith. And under the tyranny of the police's watch, they begin to fall away, and she's left alone. A young man, along with several of his friends from his school, attend the same church in town. They're led on a winter retreat, and they come back full of energy and vigor, having dedicated their lives to Jesus Christ. But once they get back to school, they face an inscrutable amount of persecution from boys and girls across the aisle who mock them for daring to follow Jesus Christ. And one by one, the small group withers to one person sitting alone in a lunchroom, ostracized for his faith. So hard. Why? Why is it so hard? Why won't the Lord make the life of faith easier? Why is it so difficult? The answer emerges from this passage. The answer emerges from the book of Hebrews. It's because you're a stranger. You're an exile on the earth. You were made for a better country, another city whose designer and builder is God, but you're not ready for that city. Not most of us anyway. There may be from time to time an Enoch. Once chosen by God and then ripped from the earth and deposited directly into heaven. A Beanie Collins type, right? Really holy. But for most of us, constrained by gravity and the providence of God to life here on this earth, we're not ready yet. This is the message of the Lord. You must be refined, matured, sanctified, tested and tried by both the fire and flood until you might inhabit the character of the home for which you were destined Heaven is the place of God, and God is holy. His city is holy. And to live there, you too must be holy. In fact, the author of Hebrews states in this very chapter that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so through all of the pains of this earth, the Lord is making you holy. By the blood of Jesus, you've already been declared righteous. That is, you have been justified. But you have not been made yet totally righteous. Go ahead and take a look a couple of chapters back in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. It's in that chapter that maybe in peerless fashion describes the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ. And in verse 14, we understand the tension of what it is that's happening here on the earth. For by a single offering, that offering is Jesus Christ, his flesh and his blood. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time, who? Those who have come to him in faith. Those who are, having come to him in faith, are being sanctified. Do you see that? 
Do you understand the temporal tension that's happening there in Hebrews 10, 14? You have been declared righteous, but you are not yet fully righteous. You have been declared holy based on the holiness of Jesus Christ, but you are not fully yet holy. You are being made ready for the city that is rightfully yours by the inheritance that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. But while you're here, while you're waiting, God is getting you ready for the home that is rightfully yours. You're in between, declared holy but still fighting sin, being made holy but not yet ready for God's holy presence, justified but not yet fully sanctified. And so the work of the Lord to make you righteous, to make you holy, to sanctify you is ongoing. And the Lord uses these hard days and this hard place with these hard people and all of their hard edges to get you ready. If there's a big idea that emerges out of this passage, it's this. An enduring faith embraces the discipline of the Lord. An enduring faith, the kind of faith that will get you through to the end, that perseveres, Embraces the discipline of the Lord. It doesn't just endure it. It says, Lord, I reckon with what you say in your word that this is how you're getting me ready. And so I submit humbly, Lord, get me ready. Make me holy. Make me like Jesus Christ. There are, I think, three passages that break down here in what we're looking at today in Hebrews chapter 12, three points. The first is in verses 3 through 4, where we find that we are grieved in our resistance. Verses 3 through 4, we are grieved in our resistance. Take a look again at verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Point number one. We understand that Jesus Christ himself suffered. It is logical then, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and that he suffered, that you too also will suffer. There was a purpose behind his suffering. There is also a purpose behind yours. Jesus Christ suffered. Not only a life of unendurable obstacle, but also an unimaginable grief on the cross so that you might be made righteous and in your righteousness adopted as the sons and daughters of God. There is also then a purpose behind your pain. You are being refined. You're being matured so that you might achieve that righteousness to which Jesus models for all of us. So we're not surprised about suffering. Look at verse 4. In your struggle against sin, he says, though, that you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Maybe it's gotten hard. It's going to get harder. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying to this community that has already endured so much suffering and so much persecution that has been so intense that however many of them have already fled the faith and have denied that they ever followed Jesus Christ, not with any meaningful verve at all. He says you have suffered. Guess what? You have not yet suffered in such a way that will cost you, many of you, your own lives. Don't be surprised about suffering, even as Jesus went through it. And he says here, don't grow weary. That's the same word that's used in James chapter 5, verse 15. 
for uh, sickened. Don't grow sickened. It's in Revelation chapter 2, verse 3, it says of the church there that uh, this has caused them to faint, this kind of weariness. They have been worn down. But he says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. This is a fascinating term. It's a military term, meaning to stand in opposition against the enemy in the line of battle. This is what you've been called to do, he says. Now think about that just for a moment. There is this great narrative that has exuded out of the, those preachers and teachers who profess the prosperity gospel. You're familiar with this. It is almost inescapable. Every time you turn on the television, if there's somebody who's talking about the gospel, I can't imagine how evangelicals have dropped the ball so mightily as to allow the airwaves in Christian verse to be dominated by these charlatans and frauds and fakes who are scamming the weakest among us in order to line their pockets. And they've done so on a false gospel that says essentially this, if you love Jesus and Jesus loves you, then he's only going to give you good things. Good days, easy days, easier lives, more wealth, more prosperity, more health. Follow him and the Christian life will get easier and easier and easier. But obviously that's not the testimony of everybody, right? I've been following Jesus a really long time. Sometimes it's not easy. And so how do we account for that? And there's a very easy way that they account for it. They say, oh, well, if you're, if you're going through something and you're not getting the results that you really want right? You're not getting the promotion at work. You're driving an old car or won't start half the time. Uh, your relationships are still fraught with peril. Your kids don't like you and, and your boss hates you and, and your spouse is always irritable around you. And well, then obviously there are two problems here. One, you're not giving enough money to my ministry, right? To be clear, that's the end objective of every prosperity gospel teacher on the planet, to sucker you out of money by filling you so full of guilt that you'll do anything to alleviate that pain. Because here's the real problem for them. If you're going through something and it's not turning out the way you want, the problem is you. You just don't have enough faith. Do you understand? If only you were more faithful, then this wouldn't be happening to you. I would love to see the author of Hebrews sent from heaven down to the earth to the studio in, in, in the city where that gospel is being recorded. And I want him to say how radioactively stupid and contradictory such a thing is for anyone who has spent not years, but minutes reading what's actually in the New Testament. It is the testimony of many of those from uh, Jesus himself to John, to Peter, to Paul, to Jude, to all of the authors here, all of the saints, the men and the women who stood up for Jesus Christ in the first century to say, guess what? We had a lot of faith. It was given to us by Jesus Christ and it was still hard because sometimes God uses this pain, and in fact, not just sometimes, but almost regularly, to mold us and refine us and mature us, to make us more like him. Pain isn't always punitive. Sometimes pain is formative. It is getting us ready. The trials of this life are meant to prepare you 
for what's to come. And so we reckon with that word there, resist. We are resistors. That's what we've been called to do. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, I want you to imagine that uh, here you were kept in a dungeon. It's the ancient world, dark and furious, with such great influence from Satan and all of his demonic army, and there brooding in total darkness in the penitentiary of your sin, overwhelmed in the depth of your unchristlikeness, so unholy, mired in the tarry pit of everything that stands in repulsion to God, Jesus Christ comes and alights the dungeon and draws you out in love and mercy and grace. But this is not the end of the trajectory for your life. You are then drawn into the house of God and he anoints you now a soldier in the army that he has generated to war against sin and to fight against unrighteousness and to stand in direct opposition to those who once held you in slavery. And so he gives you an armor. He gives you a helmet and a breastplate and a shield and a sword. And he stands you on the front line of battle. See, this is where most of these people are right here. They have been drawn out of that pit and out of that mire and out of that dungeon. And now they have been given this armory full of equipment to go and face those who once held them in bondage. Jesus Christ, the head of the great angelic army, now leads us forward in white, in light, to war against those who were our captives, whose power has now been broken by the chief of our host. And he says, you have resisted, but you haven't resisted yet to the point of shedding blood. And that's where the rubber meets the road because this army is marching into battle. You're not going to stand on the back lines. You're not going to stand back in the tent. You're not going to be in a logistical sense uh, resolved from the battle. You'll be right in the front. Your shield will be battered against by the weapons of the evil one. Your sword must be plunged into the vestiges of those who once held you captive. Do you understand you were made as a soldier to go out there and fight, and so fighting you're going to do. You will resist to the point maybe even of shedding your own blood. But you'll fight. Because you fight in the battle of Jesus Christ, you'll win. We have been grieved. But we have been grieved in resistance. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You are part of an army of resistance in a very dark world whose champion is ready to come again at any moment and draw us all into the city for which we are, by that battle, being prepared in which to live. Secondly, we are not only grieved for resistance, we are grasping for righteousness. I'm going to skip the middle part of this and come back to it. I know I'm taking one and then three and we'll go back to two. But we find here very clearly that the reason for all of our fighting is that we are fighting for righteousness. Go ahead and take a look at verse 10. Verse 10. For they disciplined us, speaking of our earthly fathers, for a short time it seemed best to them. But he, that is the Lord, disciplines us. Why? For our good what's good for us, that we may share in his holiness. 
For this moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained for it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight the paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed, right? You're on the front lines of battle. You've been equipped with the equipment that you need to go and fight the enemy as sin and unrighteousness, unholiness. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God so that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and it may become defiled that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent. Though he sought it with tears, the battle is coming. Get ready. Tense up. Here we go. Congregation, we are moving into this battle against unrighteousness. Are you set? One of the very first things that we taught in all the years that I taught tennis lessons, we taught all the kids that there was a particular stance that you had to have. You were in the ready position. You had your racket in hand. You were slightly bent over. You had your knees bent. You were ready to move to the right or to the left, but you were ready. Almost every time when these early players got skunked on the court, they got skunked because they'd hit the ball and then they'd look off into the distance or watch where their shot was going or find some pretty girl on the side of the court. Is she clapping for this great shot that I just, as the ball gets returned and flown right by you, right? No, no, get ready. Are you in the ready position? See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And then he gives here as an illustration Esau. Esau, the battle is already over. You chose the other side. You were called into righteousness. You went absolutely AWOL. And one of the reminders that comes from the author of Hebrews is that there is coming a day in which it will be too late. <laughs> the mercy of God is as wide as the universe is expanse. Today, tomorrow it will not be. Make the most of that opportunity. This grasping for righteousness is something we find all over the New Testament. Go ahead and take a look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I don't want you to believe that the author of Hebrews is the only person in the New Testament that's talking about God setting you aside for righteousness' sake, that he is getting you ready, that he is making you holy. So Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verse 3 there. Blessed be, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. That we should be holy and and blameless before him. You see, believer, you are being drawn into the presence of God, whether it be days or months or years or many, many decades from now, you will, as a follower of Jesus Christ, be in his presence. But between now and then, he is working on you to make you holy and blameless before him. This is your terrestrial destiny, to be discipled, to be disciplined, to be matured, until he calls you into his holy presence. 
William McGurnall, who is my favorite Puritan writer right now, says of this passage, Thus God chose out of the lump of mankind whom he set apart for this purpose to carve his own image upon them, which consists in the righteousness and true holiness, a piece of such rare workmanship that when God hath finished it, it shall show to men and angels it will appear to exceed the fabric of heaven and earth itself. He's getting you ready. He's getting you ready. So don't believe even for a second that the Christian life is over the day in which you choose to follow him. It's really just begun. The day the Spirit of God indwells your heart is the first day of a long journey out of sin and into righteousness. It's day one of training camp leading you into the life of Christ himself. Every day I fight sin, strive for holiness, and praise God in the midst of my pain when I rise up in the middle of my refining fire and give glory to the God who is pulling me through it all. At the end of that day, I am one day closer to being like Jesus. One day closer to being ready for my future home. One day further into holiness. You know I, I love to read. And I love reading biographies, and maybe in that genre of biographies, the, the most that I've read, I've read about a number of astronauts. I think they're a unique breed of people, these men and women who are willing to be flung out into space and do extraordinary things untethered by gravity. Now, you've got to understand the amount of work that goes into just being chosen as a candidate to be an astronaut. These people strive to be in peak physical condition, and I've read a number of these biographies where they talk about doing extraordinary things just to get their bodies ready to potentially be a candidate to be an astronaut. Uh, one astronaut had uh, his eyeballs were pointy, right? <laughs> and so he spent the next year and a half going to a doctor who did an extraordinary procedure to push on his eyeball day after day to flatten it to get him ready for... They're some of the smartest people on the planet. Almost all of the people who are out there in space, none of them are just tourists. They're... PhDs in physics and astrophysics and biology and they have been studying the entirety of their adult lives just to get ready for this moment and so they spend years decades getting ready just to be a candidate and then and then on the day in which they're selected they get the call from the director yes you're going to be an astronaut with NASA and, and guess what one day we're going to send you into space well that's it you've arrived all the work has finally paid off right Oh, no. That's when the work starts. That's when they start getting you ready. That's when they measure you for the suit and teach you how to use it in the vacuum of space. That's how they teach you about sitting on thousands and thousands of pounds of fuel that they're going to light on fire and shoot you off into the ether and how to do that and survive while working nine to five up there every day until they plunge you back through the flame of the atmosphere into a pinpoint precise location here on a very hard rock. And see, this is what happens to a lot of believers. They come to faith in Jesus Christ, and it's an overwhelming experience, and they are just enveloped in the love of Jesus Christ and in the enthusiasm of the congregation. And then, and then, and then, and then what? That's day one. You're just starting. Now is when... Jesus Christ, through his spirit, begins to do the work to draw you into Christ's likeness. You have been declared righteous, but now you're being made ready. Do you understand? We, we are grieved in resistance, but we are also 
grasping for righteousness. And finally, we do all of this guarded in relationship. Guarded in relationship. Go ahead and and turn back to Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll start back at verse 5. Verse 5 starts with a call to remember. Just as a marginal note here, can I say this? He says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? You cannot forget something that you never knew. How many times would you have sat through the preaching of one of these uh, apostles in the New Testament era? And they said, hey, do you remember? And you go, guess what? I never read it, right? Get on your Dwell Bible app. Get your Bible. Read your Bible so that when somebody says, hey, do you remember from the... Oh, yeah, 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 I remember that, okay? Marginal note over. And have you forgotten quoting here Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? I don't want the women to feel left out here. We can say sons and daughters. We understand parenthetically what's happening. My son, do not regard lightly or despise or consider as inconsequential the discipline of the Lord, the training of the Lord. Now, you might want to underline that word or circle it or just make note of it somewhere. The discipline of the Lord. It's used in a couple of other places. Second uh, Timothy 3.16, which is this iconic statement of the usefulness of the Word of God, for the Word of God is living and active, uh, sharper than any... Oh, no, sorry, that's Hebrews chapter 4. Why don't we go ahead and turn there so you can see it for yourselves. Second Timothy... 3.16. He talks about in verse uh, 12, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors were going from bad to worse. But as for you, continue in what you've been taught. Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for four things. Teaching, reproof, correction, and Training in what? Righteousness. The word for training there, the exact same term that's used here in Hebrews chapter 12. Training, discipline. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, we're told to bring our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That word nurture there, exact same term. Training, discipline. You are being disciplined. You're being trained. And he's saying, hey, you remember all the way back in Proverbs a thousand years ago? We told you this. Don't be surprised by it. You're being trained. And because you're being trained, he says, don't be weary. Don't be wearied by all of this. When you are reproved by him, don't believe for a second that this means that he's angry with you, that he doesn't love you, that you're under the condemnation of the Lord our God. One New Testament commentator says this, conviction by the Holy Spirit is not synonymous with rejection. Therefore, the believer should not become discouraged when he's confronted with his wrongs. This isn't God's anger being poured out on you. All of God's anger was poured out on Jesus Christ. But this is God using the pain in your life to train you to get ready for righteousness. Now, we had a friend, have a friend, and uh, he and his wife uh, fostered these uh, two little boys and man they are cool and in the fostering process they decided that they wanted to adopt these two boys to be their sons 
And uh, there's a lot of work that goes into that, and I'm not familiar with even the half of it, but uh, one day we were talking about discipline because boys were in a home with virtually no discipline, and now they were brought into a new home where they were loved well, and they wanted what was best for them, and so they were instructed to, to discipline them, but in very careful ways. In our house, when the girls were little, we had a timeout chair. It's a little wooden chair. It's not terribly comfortable, but we always put it in the hallway there in our house because it's the most boring part of our house. There is literally nothing to do. It's not in the living room where you can see the TV or the kitchen where you can look into the fridge and kind of imagine what tasty things are in there. It's in the hallway where you can look at the register for the air duct return. That's all there is. And the girls would get in trouble, and they would sit there, and uh, that's the only thing there. And so they would pick at that register, and I'd go, ah, don't touch that, right? And they'd go, right? That's their face. But we would put them out of the exciting place and put them over here to the side where they couldn't be stimulated at all. They just had to sit there and stew about what they had done wrong. When these two little boys were brought into my friend's home and they said, look, you might have to use the timeout chair. This is a part of the advance of discipline that you'll use with them. You can't ever send them away. You understand? You'll be tempted to send them to their room or to put them in a quiet, far-off part of the house. But these little boys, in the way that they have been wrongly disciplined in the past, have been sent off over and over again. And so you need to use a timeout chair, use it, but you're going to put it right beside you because they need to know that when they are put away, they're not being put far off. They're being brought closer for a purpose to realize that relationship in new and healthy ways. Believer, when you are enduring the work of our Lord Jesus Christ preparing you for righteousness, he is not putting you far off. He is drawing you near. Do you understand? You are not being punished even when you are being refined. Embrace that. Now, it goes on. He says here in verse 6, For the Lord disciplines the one that he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. Chastise may be the right way to interpret that word, but it robs it of some of its power. In John chapter 19, verse 1, that word is used of the soldiers who took out a whip and beat the back of Jesus. There it's translated scourged. You are being worked over, chastised, to get you ready for righteousness, to bring you closer to Christ's likeness. The scourging is proof of one, his divine fatherly love, and two, our legitimacy as his children. Every believer, a son and daughter of God, there are no heavenly bastards, you understand? It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and lived? For they disciplined us for a short time in a way that seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we might share in his holiness. Grasping this perspective... 
of not only enduring but embracing the discipline of God is essential to advancing in Christ's likeness. When I was in fifth grade, we moved to the town that I say I grew up in. We moved to, to Springfield, Ohio. And uh, it was great. Uh, the same week that we moved in, the kid moved in across the street. He became my best friend for years and years. And, and we played together all the time. We ended up going to the same school. And I remember like in the first week of school, I met all the kids. And they had been together since kindergarten. It seemed like they had all been together. And everybody was friendly, as friendly as you can be in fifth grade when everybody's self-conscious and it's a little bit awkward, right? But there was one kid, and he just picked on me mercilessly. And <laughs> we just didn't get along. And he was absolutely wild. His mom was rarely home. Dad was there, but not there. You know what I mean? And they would come to school. And I remember it started in fifth grade, and I heard it all through middle school and all through high school. And, and the exploits of what they got away with just got worse and worse and worse. Well, we, we, we snuck out of the house, and we went over here, and we, we got into some trouble. We, we got a can of spray paint out of my dad's garage, and we went over here, and we tagged some fence in the neighbor's yard. Or I remember hearing the great story. I think they were in about sixth grade when uh, four or five of them said to uh, uh, e- their moms that they were going to the other one's house, and what they all did was they all left together, and they went to a, a house that uh, was for sale that had nobody living in it, and they broke in through the back door, and they spent the night there, Right? tore the place absolutely to pieces. You know what happened when the parents found out? Nothing. Uh, maybe seventh or eighth grade is when they really started smoking a fair amount, right? Started with clove cigarettes, and before you knew it, they were smoking an extreme amount of pot, and it wasn't much further into high school before that became too tame, and any kind of illicit drug that you can think of that they get their hands on, they were actually starting to imbibe. And you just saw this this kid's life and, and, and I can look at it now with a different perspective than I did then because he was absolutely cruel to me for years and I just was <laughs> angry at this kid and now I look back with pity because he'd do something outrageous and he'd go home and dad would find out and do nothing and he'd do something even more outlandish and he'd go home and mom and dad weren't even there and he'd do violent, awful, terrible, angry things, self-destructive things, self-harmful things. And there was no one home to help. Not one brief respite of discipline ever. And he was so full of sorrow and self-loathing and guilt and anger and got into a fight, a physical fight with his girlfriend one night, high on whatever, went home, got a gun out of his father's closet and ended his own life. And it was the first funeral I went to for someone that wasn't a family member or went to our church. Now, I remember being in fifth grade and doing something that seemed trivial at the time and getting reamed for it (laughs) by the guy sitting over there who never raised his voice which was the scariest part can I just say right mad and I thought well if I were in this kid's house I wouldn't have got in trouble how nice he must have it 
How wonderful the world in which he lived. His father hated him. You understand? Did not love him enough to discipline him and caused him unimaginable grief by his absence. Your father loves you. And because he loves you, you will be disciplined by the providential hand of the Almighty. It will not be easy. It will be very, very hard. It will be overwhelming. But he will be with you the entire time. Now, the authors of the New Testament have the goal to say that this pain is light and temporary. How dare you? (laughs) It doesn't feel light. It feels like it's been going on forever. It's not a statement, really, of what we're enduring now as much as it is an emphasis on the promise of the world that is to come. You understand? Let me give you just two things, two points of application here. Take them for what they're worth. I would encourage you, one, as a regular part of your prayer life to confess your sin. Daily. When I was a little boy, uh, I was sent to a Christian school for a couple years. And I remember in second grade, Mrs. Wolf got up before our class And she said, class, every day we're going to pray when we start. We're going to pray, P-R-A-Y, right? Praise, repent, ask, yield. That's how we're going to do that. Some of you grew up with Acts, A-C, well, we grew up with pray, P-R-A-Y. So often I think our prayer lives are just a laundry list of the things we want the Lord to do for us. Some kind of baptized in the language of Scripture and some not. Some genuine and earnest, I don't mean to belittle. But as a regular part of our prayer lives, it's a good thing to stand before the holy God of the universe who made us all and just say, I I know I'm not ready yet. I know you're still working on me. I acknowledge that I am not yet holy as Christ is making me holy. But I am confident that you are doing this work to get me ready for the home that you have made for me. That's number one. Number two, when you are studying your Bible, as you're listening to the Bible, as you're reading the Bible, as you're reading the Bible to your kids, and some of you, your grandkids, and you get to the cross often and very, very quickly. It is easy if we're not intentional about it. I know many of you are in a Bible study fellowship this year. You're studying Genesis. Genesis is fascinating, right? To be in Genesis, and it's 50 chapters long, and I think about a good friend of mine in town, and he's a very thorough preacher. He's been seven years preaching through Genesis, 
right? But he's also a preacher who loves the cross of Jesus Christ and at every opportunity gets from where he is to where Jesus is. Let me encourage you this way. As you're reading the Bible, make your way regularly, emphatically, enthusiastically, with great earnestness to the cross of Jesus Christ. As not to be overwhelmed by your sin, as not to be overwhelmed by the work that Jesus Christ is doing on your behalf. Be reminded of what Jesus has done at Calvary to draw you in as sons and daughters. To see what he endured and to see the love displayed of he who is causing you this discipline. We have much to be grateful for. And this is the astonishing thing about being a follower of Jesus Christ. That when things are hardest, it may be that then that we need to be reminded most earnestly, here is the proof that God loves us. You are loved. Your pain has a purpose. He is drawing you closer to Jesus. Father, let our confidence be in you. And in all of the trials that we will endure, let us embrace them as the means by which you are drawing us closer and closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen.